Thanks for attending the Disruption Now Virtual Summit 2020. This session is brought to you by Fuse by Cardinal Health. Your panelists are Will Hayes and Doug McCullough. This panel will be moderated by Lauren Burke. And now, the host of the Disruption Now Virtual Summit, Rob Richardson. Welcome to the Disruption Now Virtual Summit. We are glad to have you here as we talk about the human connection to technology. Hope everybody's doing well. We have people from all across the country. So we got my man, Will Hayes, who's uh, joined us from the Bay, from uh, Lucid Works. How you doing, man? Doing really good. Really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for being on. Doug McCullough, our man, who's we've done a lot of events together now. I think we're kind of becoming uh, we're, we're kind of becoming pros at this thing. How you doing, Doug? Doug, can we I'm hear doing you? Well, it's good there to we see go. you. Good to see everybody. Yeah, Doug is the CIO of the city of Dublin. Uh, one of the leaders of Black Tech 614. We appreciate all his partnership and everything he does. And last but certainly not least, and the moderator for this event, Lauren Burke with Women in Analytics. How you doing? Good. How are you? Hey, living the dream, living the, I guess, the virtual dream because we can't do this in person. Uh, but we're going to make the most out of this moment. And, uh, you know, this time has allowed us to connect with a lot with, with a lot more people sometimes. So we're making the most of it. And we're learning as much as we can. So Lauren, I'm going to turn it over to you and you get to take us and MC the event. All right. Thank you, Rob. All right. So since this is the human connection to technology, Will, this is something you're very close to and you work close with. Can you, we, you start off by telling us the difference between artificial intelligence and augmented intelligence? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a really good concept for, for people to understand as we think about where we have, you know, sort of good use of technology, of AI, of machine learning to either enrich our lives, enrich our experiences, or where things can go a little sideways. And I think a perfect example is if you think about what machine learning actually is, is it's a machine. And one of my favorite examples was a tweet that a woman put out one time to Amazon saying, hey, Amazon, um, you know, I, I bought a toilet seat because I, I needed to replace a toilet seat. Um, I'm not like an addict or anything. Why do you keep advertising and pushing me more promotions and telling me when there's new toilet seats? And that's an example of where just artificial intelligence just looks at numbers and makes decisions. So our belief, and, and with my company LucidWorks, what we try to encourage is how do you intersect humans in the middle to make those final decisions, to use that human intellect, that human instinct, that intuition that a machine's just never going to have. Think about artificial intelligence as ways to provide more efficient choices to humans but I do not think that artificial intelligence should be making choices in our daily lives. That's where this idea of augmented intelligence comes in, where we become much more efficient, but a human is always in the loop to ensure that we're providing that human experience on top of things first and foremost. Yeah, absolutely. That's incredibly important, especially when you're working with technologies that touch large amounts of people. Doug, so as the CIO of a city of Dublin, how are you in integrating humans into the process of developing your technologies that affect the citizens? Well, this is interesting. You know, small communities not develop ground technologies. You know, we tend to specify them, we purchase them from others, and we configure them. So, you know, someone like Will is the person who is developing the technology. But I do want to introduce one concept. I sit on a work group with the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission that is developing uh, a survey and toolkits for local governments and people in my situation to try to enhance what we can do as we begin to delve into things like machine learning and artificial intelligence and putting the human element or verifying and keeping the human <laughs> element into our technology development. And so, uh, as Will kind of has alluded to, uh, our goal is to, this is the unexciting and unsexy part of artificial intelligence, which is the slogging forward. I thought it was all sexy. <laughs> no, well, it's all sexy to me, but it may not be <laughs> sexy to the audience. But there's uh, a lot of spreadsheets involved. <laughs> well, I mean, it, the thing is, is that you've got to interject and intervene being the concepts of equity and, and equality into every part of the technical uh, rollout. And that is a slog. It's just, it's just a pickaxe kind of hammer and chisel working away like Fred Flintstone on, on these things. And 
we're just one small community, which is why we try to act as a region in central Ohio to answer these questions for uh, many communities and not just one. Because if one community does a fantastic job and nobody knows about it, then it's not going to help. These things have to scale. Yeah. And I think there's some, there's some, like when people, depending on who you talk to, even some people are scared to death when they think about artificial intelligence, be, because uh, I really like the way Will said it, because people see artificial intelligence, some do see artificial intelligence and say like, okay, are we replacing humans? The ultimate goal, uh, I mean, I would say no. I mean, this, this, uh, I'm trying to remember the book. I think it was the second machine age. And it talked about the fact that, okay, we do, we now have, we now have a computer that uh, that can out that can beat regular a regular one person a chess master if it's just one chess master. But if you have a team that's actually just knows how to use the computer, they were able to beat a supercomputer and chess masters because they knew how to use the uh, they knew how to use computers in the right way while also interjecting human potential and human thinking. So I do think that's how we have to think about it, and that's how the process has to be. And it shouldn't just scare us because I tell look, look technology is coming one way or another. We got to figure out how we use it uh, to, and make sure it has the most impact for all involved. Absolutely. Absolutely. If I could tag in on that, because I'm really impressed with the way that Will is talking about augmented intelligence. I think of this in that way, like computers can calculate in a way that's far and away more than any human is going to be. Able. It's just raw brute strength. But making decisions and having judgment uh, and nuance is not that great of, a, of yes. a, a strength for them. So when we think about, I'm going to make decisions, but when I need to do massive raw computation, I'm going to call on a tool. And that's what we need to think of artificial intelligence as, as just a tool. And then we can do a lot of it. And it's a little bit less scary, I think. And this is my point about presenting choices, not making decisions, right? Because a lot of, you know, and I come from a data world, I'm a little biased, but, you know, a lot of what we're trying to accomplish with, with artificial intelligence is how do we make sense of just massive amounts of information and data and present it in a way that's, you know, readily available for Rob to take an action with. And so when you start thinking about sort of all of the different permutations and the dimensions that you have to kind of start working through in order to make those decisions. Obviously, this is where the machine algorithm approach makes the most sense. But at the end of the day, it's about how do I distill that massive amount of information down to something that's consumable so then a human being can actually interject that choice. Because so the point that you made, Doug, I mean, the intuition, the intellect, the instinct, the emotion that we, we absorb in part of that interactive experience is what makes us human. And, and we're never going to achieve that, at least today, with, with technology. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It's incredibly result-driven. And a lot of times you really should be considering who is going to be using that at the end. Who is your audience that you really want to be able to make that decision off of? So something we hear a lot of in like algorithms around machine learning and artificial intelligence is that the expression like garbage in means garbage out. So when you're dealing with poor, limited, or biased data sets. So like in some cases, those bad data sets can result in a faulty product. So Absolutely. like for due to limited training data, one example is voice technologies often misinterpret or have trouble understanding like particular accents or women's voices. And another that I know you've talked about before, Will, is chatbots and recommendation systems. So without yeah. human intervention in those, those can have some disastrous results. And this goes back to how these things are trained. I mean, Rob and I had a fun conversation about this on the podcast where, you know, a lot of these, these, these disasters that have occurred, like Cortana, for instance, was because they were training on conversations occurring on Twitter. <laughs> and so, you know, you got to ask yourself, like, have you ever been on the Internet? Have you ever gone through the Internet comments that is not necessarily a place where you want to train? Why is that important? Because sentiment is how we determine how we should emotionally react to something. And when you start training a machine to learn sentiment from conversations that are happening in cyberspace with no controls, with complete anonymity, with complete toxicity, we start to associate sentiment around gender, sentiment around race, sentiment around socioeconomic status, sentiment around whether you've been involved in the justice system. And that starts to then impact the way decisions are being made by these systems. Now, it's one thing if I'm trying to promote a, a pair of tennis shoes. It's another thing if I'm trying to determine a sentencing guideline. And so that's why when you think about garbage in, garbage out, garbage in, garbage out could mean that you know somebody promotes to me the, the next pair of high heels, which has no real functional value to me. Okay, that's garbage in, garbage out. You made a bad decision. I'm not going to transact. But it could also mean making a decision 
about an individual based on the way they look, based on the way they talk, based on their gender, and having that built inherently into the system making these decisions. This is not like a human being having a bad day. This is a machine that has been trained to understand bias and to apply bias in its decision making. That is a critical mistake that we have to avoid going forward. And we've seen plenty of examples of folks who have just trained on these data sets and unleashed things to the public and have very bad results. Yep. And I would say, just to add to that before you move on to Doug, I know you're going to ask a question there. It also leads to economic results. Like it's, of course, it's, we don't like it being diverse people here. We don't like it when there are negative implications for women, when there are negative uh, implications for black and brown people, it affects us in a personal way. But you, you talked about this on the podcast too. It, it goes beyond that. Like, you know, when Microsoft released the racist bot, that hurts your reputation. And, and reputation travels real fast right bad now business. on the internet. This is, it's bad <laughs> business, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, garbage in means, you know, not only having the right data sets, but I'm sure people didn't go in and say, oh, I want to create garbage in. They just didn't have the right people there to say, like you said, if you and I were there or Doug <laughs> was there, we're like, wait, 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 wait. You, you're going to get your information on Twitter? Like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> like, now, we're, like, now we're getting into the, the economic advantage of having an inclusive team. Because again, that was the part that we just, yeah, again, like how people just sat in a room and no one thought this would be a bad idea clearly was lacking representation. Simple representation, by the way. If I could put a perspective in there before you ask your next question, Lauren, though. Uh, <laughs> Please. One of my interpretations is that, uh, you know, Microsoft did not release a racist bot. Microsoft released a reflective bot onto a racist <laughs> data set, right? And if we encountered, you know what I mean? I mean, it, it reflects what we do. It is, you know, the technology worked perfectly, right? <laughs> as Exactly as designed. I understand why they did it and how this happened as well. And I'm not giving them a pass or anybody a pass for doing this. But, you know, the question implies also that we're trained as data people that the larger your data set, the more accurate and valuable your results are going to be. Mm -hmm. So what you really want is the biggest data set you can have. And if you're trying to train for conversationality, Twitter is a pretty good choice. People are having conversations on it and the data is massive. And so I think in addition to the people conversation we're probably about to have, uh, we need to think about, if you're just talking about purely the data before you got to the team or anything like that, uh, we actually need to be proactive and intentional to create data sets that are not racist because our actual behavior is racist. <laughs> so <laughs> our bots are going to be, right? So if we want non-racist bots, we're going to have to actually proactively and intentionally insert data. So, so mass of data is actually less valuable than, than, the accuracy and the target design that we're going. I think what I would, what I would, I wouldn't counter, but what I would argue there though, not to not give, I'm not trying to attack and, and I'm also not giving a pass, but you know, th th there's gotta be an intentionality behind it, right? Cause to your point, yes, the, 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 the data sets that you were going to examine as part of these exercises, you have to put thought behind those things. And I go back to just simply representation. If you're, if you're releasing a chatbot with the intention of putting it out there to the world to serve all of the people, then you should probably be thinking harder about the, how much representation is within those data sets. So I do think there's some accountability there. I hear what you're saying. And yes, I mean, as a, as a technologist, as a scientist, you know, I, I, I often the same thing, right? You give me a massive corpus of conversations happening out there in cyberspace, and I can do a lot of really cool and interesting things with them. But again, is my intention to do academic research or is my intention to provide a service back out to the public. And so there's just, again, I think there needs to be a discipline and an accountability to how you think about that data set. How are you calling it? How are you ensuring that it's a representative data set if that is what your intention is to go do? Um, so, but I don't, yeah, but I absolutely agree with you, Doug. I mean, this is a byproduct of, of, of something else. <laughs> yeah. Not necessarily, it's not, the bot's, it's not the bot's fault. Let's just say that, you know, it's like how there's no bad dogs, right? <laughs> it's right. But the self-awareness part while we're on this, I think this is just good conversation here and, and, and really important for us to learn from because there's a, there's two lessons. One, uh, right thing to do, but also economically, like your reputational damage happens quickly and it happens fast. And so understanding that even if you don't believe in this, which we I'm, I'm sure most of us are preaching to the choir, we believe in, in being inclusive. We believe in diversity. You don't have to believe any of that. Like you say, we talked about this. You, 
it is good for your business because here's what's going to happen, right? You don't approach this right, uh, it will affect you, and so there has to be you and you have so and you and you have to know. I think we have to accept, kind of to Doug's point, that you are biased, and and in order and, and and your default is going to be to do biased things, unless you have a process in place to check your own bias, and people have to want to start from there. The acknowledgement that I am biased, I'm including myself in this, we are all biased. And unless you, and until you have a process that holds you accountable to not letting your bias affect and infect the data, this will happen again and again and again. That's kind of my point. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree because as much as we, we are talking about like the responsibility aspect of it, like companies and individuals, no one's setting out to create a racist or sexist algorithm. But at the same time, while we know that's not their intention, they also have to be intentional themselves to sort of mitigate that um, bias and that implicit uh, like bias that is causing harm for the users of this. Because if you don't have people asking those questions along the way, it does come back and it is your responsibility that this happened and this had this poor result. Um, and the negative publicity, I think, is helping to um, get more policies and more processes in place. So people are getting ahead of that and ensuring that these sort of things aren't happening over and over again and aren't ha affecting people in a negative way. Um, so something that we're like, I think we're getting at is this like disconnect between the data and the actual users. So. We know, and it's widely known, that AI can perpetuate forms of discrimination in ways that disproportionately affect the impacted populations, um, whether that's by race, sex, gender, religion, anything like that. And it can cause ongoing economic and societal problems for those individuals. So when have you seen the failure of algorithms um, that have gone wrong? And why do you think it's important that we look into that further? I'll just tag something in there on that. It, it's more question than answer, but uh, bias is human and, and we shouldn't demonize it. Uh, I, I, I'm gonna speak to one person in a different way than I speak to another person because of visual cues that that's just how the human computer works. And uh, we need to recognize this. The other thing is as a technologist, uh, this is not how we develop technology. And computer science as a discipline did not really develop over the last 30 to 50 years uh, mechanisms for this human aspect because this is this is new. Uh, we we have a, a merging of of technical capability and scale with human uh, things that we honestly need the disciplines that we've been poo pooing for a long time. Why are you going into art history? Why are you going into ethics when? Computer science is the field to go. I, I, I mentioned that also because algorithms predate uh, computers, right? So computers scale that algorithm and automate it. But the algorithm itself, I would say something like redlining or gerrymandering or, uh, uh, you know, some of those economic uh, decisions that have been made with pencil and paper for a long time. So I just want to make sure I throw that in there. That's a really interesting point, actually. Absolutely. Yep. And I think we've, we, we kind of already touched it. Obviously, we made a couple of examples about how the algorithms got it wrong. We, we went through the bots and, and you know, we, we want to make sure we actually get it right as for the two reasons we already really discussed. So this is why I think when companies hear this and, you know, why it's in their economic interest to have diverse perspectives, or, you know, uh, one of my clients, they have a company that they just do, they help they help companies avoid making stupid mistakes when it comes to advertising. You know, that that should be easy. Like there was one example of uh, I can't remember the company, but it was a company with selling beer. And and so they they went and they had the and it was a bunch of people of color in this bar and they pushed past all the people of color just to a white person <laughs> and everybody else. Could, and they didn't see they didn't see a problem with that. So, you know, if, it, obviously, if you can't see and that seems super obvious to me, like that's but like if people can't see that. How uh, you can imagine how much of a challenge they have when 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 they're looking at analyzing data with when they think is going to be objective they think is as 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 Doug said as long as we have more uh, we're going to be more accurate but that's actually not true and if you have people that had different perspectives because it is not and it's not just technical aspects actually 
a lot of the proof has been shown that people can make contributions to science that that are like tangibly there that actually don't have the level of expertise. That's why it's important to have multiple point of views. We're not just talking race, but that's important too, but also perspective. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit before when it comes to AI, what I'm excited about is that it, the, I don't want to call it the bar, but the requirement for contribution comes down dramatically, right? This is not no longer just requiring your, your data scientists. It's no longer just requiring your, your data engineers and your PhDs and your computer scientists. I mean, we need real people involved in training these algorithms and, and analyzing these data sets and ensuring that they make sense. And so I think there is a real opportunity. Also, back to what we said before, I mean, you know, I think we could have a whole panel and we could talk about inclusion and diversity and equity and why these things are important. And I'm, I'm sort of just tired of it, <laughs> frankly. But what, what, what is actually relevant here is back to the point that we're talking about. This is about economics and having economic advantages. You may not think that, you know, seeing the people pass the bar is that big of a deal. You may not even know to even ask those questions. To Lauren's point, these people don't get together with the intention of let's go create a really offensive advertising for our beer. Like, you know, that's not the that's not the objective. But again, we can see right there where that lack of inclusion led to a mistake which has a negative impact. So if there's anything else to take away, it's to look at your teams that are making decisions on behalf of the customers that you serve, because I guarantee you, almost everybody listening has an inclusive set of customers, or at least an intention to serve an inclusive set of customers. So if you are not representing those customers in that room, you have a disadvantage. And you need to think about your strategies, whether it's around how you recruit, how you build teams, how you promote your leadership, specifically for the goal of not missing out on economic opportunity, if for no other reason moves you. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I just want to put a shout out at that leadership level as well, because uh, we have inclusion and a, a lot of different things. And, and just, I don't know this commercial that you're talking about, but I can see how different uh, concepts can, can collide. So at one level, you might've had someone saying, we need more people of color in our advertising. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you know I mean? And they put them in there. And then another person in a different part of the organization was designing the storyboard for this other thing. But none of those people would be able to kill this ad before it came out that's going to take a VP or a senior VP or something like yeah. that. And so you can have a level of inclusion at, at the, at the employment level, but we need those board people. You need those people that, you, you know, the good phrase is who thought this was a good idea. Now it, <laughs> it passed a whole lot of people who didn't have the ability to say, uh, this doesn't look good. And, and so I, I just want to reemphasize, Will, what you're saying about, especially at the leadership level, you need CEOs, you need board members, you need senior level people who can say, uh, we're going to have a serious conversation about this ad or this algorithm or this decision um, because I've got the authority to do it. I'm safe. I'm not worried about yeah. it. You know, you guys well, getting rid of me or anything like that. I'm here to do that. And, and so that's important. Well, and the term I use is empowered. Are there folks not only at the table, are they empowered? Right? Are they empowered to have a voice to yeah. to make a decision to 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 veto something? And yes, yeah, so absolutely agree. Yeah, and I would say <clears throat> on that point before we move on because there's a couple things I'd like to talk about. Um, you know, Will, you talked about the technology and AI and actually lowering the bar in terms of entry. That that is true. There's actually there was a, a um, Stanford actually did an online. They opened up. They did this a while ago. They opened up artificial intelligence classes online, and and. 400, and I think the best student at Stanford came at 400 out of that class. So that tells you, okay, Stanford is supposed to, you know, only let in the best and brightest. There's a lot of people that certainly have the potential that never took AI before and are able to understand it. So I think this is, there's an opportunity for companies if they're willing to be more inclusive to have a lot of different perspectives here. And they have to look at, they have to look at just not the traditional way, but how the technology we have now is really democratizing the process. And I would say that for individuals too, for individuals, listen, you know, you don't, you don't have to, you know, will, uh, no, you didn't, you didn't graduate from college. You don't have to go to college necessarily to have a skill set in this. You just have to be passionate and be open and uh, be open to learning. And there are many tools and opportunities to actually do so. Absolutely. Yeah. The learning mindset is, is so key. Yeah. And absolutely. Like, Nowadays, there are so many boot camps, certificate programs, even particular companies like Google, they are now having training programs where you don't need a college degree, but they will train you in what you need to know to be successful 
in that environment. And I think like AI and data science, you see a lot of diversity of backgrounds and a lot of diversity of people, which I think is why it's growing so fast. And you are seeing a lot of like new things coming out. And um, it's definitely something that like in the data science teams I've worked on, I can tell the like diversity of perspective and the diversity in the decision-making process, like Doug has mentioned, is something that is incredibly effective. And uh, that's something I'd really like to touch more on. So um, not only is it useful to have like diverse data sets and diverse perspectives, but diversity in that decision-making process, especially at high levels. And that's something that like companies, venture capital firms, investors, they actually put themselves at a just like distinct disadvantage by not in incorporating those diverse groups of people in that process. So, Will, I know that's something you've mentioned. It's absolutely economical to include people and it shouldn't just be social responsibility. It should be in your mind that this is a positive to your business and a positive to your customers for you to be more inclusive in that whole process. And a negative not to be, which is also, I think, important to state, right? (laughs) It affects both both sides. Yeah, absolutely. If, if, if I could comment on that as well, um, I think we are kind of predisposed to avoid friction. Yep. And when you have more diversity and more creativity and more uh, opposing viewpoints, it really does feel like friction. And I mm-hmm. think that especially in fast moving businesses and high growth companies, we're inclined to say uh, that's bad. Like, you guys have been arguing about this for an hour and that's bad. Yeah. And, and as opposed to the more creative companies that are and organizations that are kind of like, this is awesome. We're getting to insights that we wouldn't if we all agree. And so I think that's really critical because especially in technical innovation, it truly requires friction. And if we've been in environments that were never diverse before, we're going to experience some discomfort. And that's just a a thing that all of us who are trying to achieve diversity and inclusion have to come to terms with. And and augmented uh, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning are are no different from any other type. And I want to touch, I I use the word a lot even within my own company about just the the, the discomfort, being uncomfortable. And I think it's something that we have to get much better at as a society and, you know, keep that safe space mentality as well. And I often tell people they tend to misinterpret when we talk about safety as comfort. Safety is not comfort in my mind. Safety is the ability for you to show up as your whole self, contribute your whole self. And we're not putting you in a situation where you're holding back because, again, that is a disadvantage to me as a business leader if I have resources within the company that cannot show up and fully engage. But I do not need you to be comfortable. In fact, I want you to be uncomfortable at times because that's when we're growing. That's when we're challenging our assumptions. I call it breaking the bottle. We got to get out of this trap that we've sort of set for ourselves. And so I think for organizations to start to not only just when we're talking about diversity and inclusion or AI, just bring that to your culture, celebrate discomfort, get people just used to it. That way we walk into situations that are uncomfortable with the objective that we're going to go find a commonality and go find solutions. I think as we start to kind of avoid these types of things because they feel like friction, they feel like conflict, we're just, we're just stuck in the water. We're not going anywhere. You ever been white water rafting, right? When you're pushing, you're moving, right? So it's definitely going to be hard at times, but that's when we make progress. A like, word that comes to mind when you're talking about that is really relevant to this because it is that like disruption of your current environment and your process. Yeah. And I think part of that is knowing that it doesn't have to continue going the way it has been. And it's okay to revisit a process, revisit a system, and change what needs to be fixed instead of just going with the flow when you know that there's something that needs to be um, affected right. and done to it, like affect change in that way. Yeah, I mean, there are several companies that look at it, like all the all the most creative companies, as Doug say, they have different versions of this, right? I think uh, Jeff Bezos talks about going to the day one where you're always in the mode of changing, changing, building, and not going to the default of okay, accepting the process because this is the process of what we've always had, and then you get into the Kodak situation, and if I'm sure most folks know where Kodak actually created the technology that is Instagram. And they said, well, it might disrupt our entire business. And, you know, they were right and they no longer have a business. I mean, that's how that works. If you're not willing to challenge yourself and have what Malcolm Gladwell called a constructive rivalry, because you can you have something where you are actually you encourage the environment to challenge the system in a constructive way, but challenge the system and actually empower people, as Will says, that that should be the environment 
that you are working in. And I'll make a guarantee to you, if that's not the environment that you're in, it's not going to, if it's a startup, it's not going to last. But if it's a company, it's probably not going to last either. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'd, um, so I'd like to bring it back to like, will you specifically and what you're doing with search engines. So an example I have that I'd like to bring up of how something went very wrong. Back in 2009, Sophia Umia Noble, she searched for the terms white girls on a search engine and came up with a lot of nice stock images. And then she searched for the terms black girls, Latina girls, and Asian girls. And each time the first page was filled with pornography. So she wrote a book about this called Algorithms of Oppression. And she poses the idea that search en engine results are not nearly as neutral as they may seem. So I want to ask you what people commonly get wrong when they think about how search engines work and what are you doing differently? Yeah, I mean, it, well, yeah, okay, let me answer those separately. So, I mean, when, in, the, in the case of Google, and I, I'm fully aware of the example and, and you know, do the same thing with, with males as well. Look up white teens, look up black teens. You're going to see, you know, kids playing in the park and you're going to see, you know, it, 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 people being incarcerated, literally. Um, this one is tricky when you look at it from the perspective of, let's just say, Google and you know their algorithms because a lot of what informs ranking within google is again the internet and the linking across the internet the way people reference women of color versus white women the what they link to what they talk about the volume right and so what you're seeing there is again a pretty dark reflection of society and the question i think is more so along the lines of what is the responsibility of somebody like a Google to curate that sort of content and that sort of behavior? And you can imagine that that opens up a whole can of worms, right? Because now <laughs> it's interesting. We talk about sort of augmented intelligence to prevent us from just doing something stupid. But now when you're talking about sort of shaping information, you're now actually having a human, again, inject their bias into what, what is okay, What's not okay? Can I celebrate the female body? Can I not? I mean, there's all these questions that sort of come out of this. So I just want to call out that that's a very difficult question that I think even as a society, we're not necessarily sure how to answer. I don't know that I can blame Google for using linking as part of their algorithm. It clearly points to where the internet has decided that these things are associated, right? But we, we probably have a lot of discussion to determine at which point is a provider responsible for curating that. And as they start to curate, does that even change the, the DNA of who they are? So meaning like, am I no longer just this search engine? Am I actually like a content provider, a content stream? Am I, you know, am I a, <laughs> an editorial, you know, that type of thing. So it's something to think about when it comes to us. So, so my company, we build um, what we call sort of AI powered search engines. Um, we work with a number of top retail brands. We work with uh, large companies that are just trying to use artificial intelligence and search technology to help people find information within the company. If you ever work for a big business or work for a, a, a government like, like, like Doug, you know, there's just massive amounts of information. And so we really help people use the same approaches that Google or Amazon uses to their experience to understand their corporate information. Because of that, kind of to what Doug said, we have one advantage in that we are typically looking at a very sp specific corpus. If I'm in retail, obviously everything I'm doing is in and around that catalog and how I'm helping people engage that catalog more, discover that catalog more. If I'm working within a bank, it's all around financial services and the data that they have within the bank, that proprietary data. So we don't get exposed as much to some of these issues that others might have. But we do often need to think about, again, like the way we're making assumptions about ranking. There was an interesting discussion that went into my company about we were, we were using color as a, as a, as a higher weighted um, field, basically, a piece of metadata compared to another field. And it got into an interesting conversation that is that a gender bias? to assume that a recommendation engine, that color matters. Is that just something that we just assume because we happen to be looking at you know, a women apparel store, but the moment we go somewhere else, does that go out the window? So you see that little thing, this wasn't necessarily about inclusion or exclusion, but it was one sort of interpretive point that could be seen as being biased that could take us down a variety of paths which may or may not be advantageous to our user. So there is some complexity that comes into those, those scenarios, but I do have the advantage of we're not out there trying to consume the internet and build recommendation models and things where, again, to, to, as Doug was saying, we're taking trillions of records because that's how we get a good inclusive data set and we're allowing the, the biases and, and the sentiments within those records to, to make decisions. We don't really get into that as much. Yeah, uh, what a great problem though. 
speaking of friction and controversy and oh that's a longer conversation because we're going to come up with better products where that's concerned and i agree with everything you've said will um thinking about you just sort of remove google from that and what do all of us have as a responsibility to building effective search and what are our actual objectives? The, the original algorithm of Google has to do with rankings and has to do with what is the top, because that's what the internet says, you know, that based on all, everything that's out there, and it's probably what you're looking for, and that's kind of good enough. But search now is, is more detailed and has actual objectives. And so forget about Google for a second, when you're searching for employees and you're, you're using your network and you're looking for candidates, you're really acting as a search engine. And when you are making decisions about parole for offenders, you're, you're kind of acting as an algorithm. Yeah. It's a much smaller data set. And I do believe, and this is controversial, Will, so I'll be interested <laughs> in what you think about this. I do believe we need to insert some intentionality into the objectives that we're trying to achieve. We have a universality and a illusion of no bias that says, I'm not going to touch the data because that would bias it. Well, data is already biased and the results yeah. are biased. <laughs> so now if we want to accomplish a certain hiring or fairness in sentencing or uh, fairness in giving loans out, we're going to have to insert objectives and then we're going to need to look at the data set that comes back and iterate through it and say, well, did this come back with the kind of inclusion that we were looking for? If not, we need to iterate. And that is controversial. And, and it should be. And, and I'm, I'm thankful that we're at this moment right now where we're having an honest conversation about race and sex and sexism and, and, and you know, abuse and, and these things so that we can begin to say, wait a second, this goes against values that we used to have, but today's values, we want to use our technology to accomplish our societal goals. And that makes this a legitimate thing to move after. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree completely in that we should figure out ways to use data in a way that's intentional. I know um, China has some, has some technology that they are doing more in terms of inserting in the process of how the criminal justice system works. And, and then they're looking to see, okay, is this prosecutor or judge out of line in terms of how they're sentencing with these cases? And if they are, is there, are there some corrections that need to be made? Uh, I do think there are, and there should be opportunities uh, to use data. I, I think the opposite is being done right now, but I do think we need to be more intentional. The, the one that comes really comes to mind is facial recognition and how that's being used and there's a lot of challenges there because they're, you know, it, 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 facial recognition we know is very good at pale male and it's, but nothing else. And so, but, but still, uh, you know, people on the security side want to use it to identify people, even though it's horrible at identifying anybody but white men for this part, but they still want to use the technology, though it's not ready to be used in a way unless we're ready to have the conversation about intentionality. So I agree completely, but I don't, I'm sure there's some disagreements on that, <laughs> but I do. Yeah, yeah, I think it's yeah. a, a big thing right now. It's really coming to light and people are really invested in making sure that companies and individuals are using this data and using these algorithms in an ethical way. One that comes to mind when we're talking about like the ethics of how you're using your data is Facebook and the election data. Um, so whether you know it or not, the things that you're seeing based on the data you consume and the data you put out um, can change your opinion and it can help you form even more biases and it can convince you of certain things. And so I think uh, like I'm, it's really good that it's coming to light right now and people are very invested in ensuring that our algorithms and our data is being used in the right way. Um, and one person that I'd like to bring up is Joy Bolomwini, who founded the Algorithm Algorithmic Justice League and she made it her mission with this is to bring light to like the harm that these discriminatory algorithms and AI technologies can have on these affected populations. And so I wanted to like talk about if there's any other companies and initiatives that you know about that are taking like these matters into their own hands and like helping address and mitigate this bias in data algorithms and AI. Yeah, and if I can expand that question too, if you don't mind too, I think to, to say, what do you see 
as the future of our relationship with data and how how can we shape that? I know, Will, we've talked about that, but I think, Doug, it's a question that you've talked about a little bit, but I think really ex- expanding on that is, is, is a really key concept. So I have one just point of view on this that I think is going to come here sooner rather than later. I'm not aware of as many organizations, back to Lauren's question, but I'd, I'd love to learn <laughs> and, and get to know them. Um, but but one of my, my, my sort of theories for the future is, is that we are going to see a world where we become far more transparent with in terms of our privacy exchange. So if you think about it today, we all know this, none of these things are free. I think everybody's kind of fully aware of that. We're using all these services, we're paying for them. We're paying for them with personal information. It's a commodity. Now, I'm not here to debate whether we should be doing that or collecting personal information. It's, 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 it's a free country. Human beings should be able to engage any way that they want. But the point is that today, there's not a lot of transparency, both in the sense that the companies don't really know what they're going to do. They just know they want to go collect it all. And I don't really understand the value of what I'm exchanging with you. So I see a world in the future where that exchange becomes far more transparent, almost like any other market exchange that we see. So let's take Facebook for an example with the facial recognition and the facial scanning. Facebook might decide to say, hey, look, we're going to scan your pictures because we're building a big you know, corpus or training set of, of, of faces that we're going to go use for whatever the heck we want to go use it for. I should be able to decide, you know what? I'm not okay with that. Opt out. What is the exchange? 50 bucks a month. Okay. Well, I can make those decisions. I can start to make those trades with that commodity far more transparently. So I don't love regulation when it comes to technology. I think it can get in the way of innovation. But I do think regulating that the way that my information gets used and providing me insight into that so I can make a decision as a consumer is something that I would definitely like to see some regulatory involvement in. Because if anything else, it's just allowing me to participate fairly in this value exchange that we've been having now for a decade. And it's new and it's moving quickly. And this is also why I think a lot of mistakes occur because companies are sitting here worried that if I don't move aggressively, if I don't move quickly back to Rob's point, I'm going to miss this wave and I'm going to become irrelevant. So I'm empathetic to some of those challenges. I'm also just, again, as a technologist, I'm, I'm fascinated by what's possible with what's out there. But definitely, again, opportunities now to kind of think about new ways of engaging in this digital world and creating a fair world where you don't have to be a digital native. You don't have to have a deep understanding of privacy and technology to use these services in an informed way. Yeah, well, Will, in in addition to being a consumer, you are also a citizen. And that's the thing. People have different roles in society. And we've seen the private sector has figured out how to really work hard on on that consumer part. But mm-hmm. government and public sector, we, we, we're way far behind in dealing with that system. But that's coming. And I think yeah, when you absolutely. look at China, you, you can see that, you know, the relationship between government and citizen and government and individual is pretty important and we need to get behind it. So I want to put a shout out here to say we need some more Dugs. Uh, <laughs> we need to have conversations in government. Uh, <laughs> we need to sit down and talk through this. Uh, it's it's important. <laughs> Let's have the fight, right? Um, so in Dublin, at the risk of saying even more controversial stuff, I think about this a lot. And we are experimenting with a digital identity product, uh, really system and platform that is based on blockchain. So not going to go down the road and talking all about blockchain <laughs> and everything, except for to say that we have the opportunity today to develop systems based on things that governments and big corporations cannot influence as much as we're, we're equalized. Individuals are going to have some influence where that's concerned. Absolutely. There is an opportunity for transparency and potentially in the world that I envision, the future world, uh, we could have a situation where all of the data that's being gathered and observations that quite frankly, this is happening around us. You don't have control over your data necessarily. But we as a government or a public sector should be in a position to empower you as an individual to see these things as they're gathered. And as you say, Will, opt out or exchange value. So, right. And I don't know that you can have a one-on-one relationship with every company that has a value stake in your data. But you might have a one-on-one relationship with the community in which you live, which might, as a service have a way of you controlling or at least being able to observe and have some transparency about your data, certainly with regard to government services. So I do see a a wider future at some point in which 
a government where you know taxes is not going to be the way we necessarily fund ourselves may have a value added service that is trusted by people that I'm going to use this service to interact with a thousand different companies and I'm going to know when I'm being observed when when my credit is being used for a particular purpose and and it's just going to be different than what we think about today and one last point I'll make about this I think this can be used as a tool against bias and against discrimination and against racism because it has the potential at least to equalize people's ability to do something like my my access to a phone or a, a small digital tool is democratized it's not i don't need a cray supercomputer in order to do this i should need a cloud based service that i can contract with for pennies a month right so that's the future i yeah, I love it. Oh, that's a great answer. Those are great answers that I didn't I didn't think about it from the government point of view, but that's a really important point that you can kind of be the intermediary in, in between, you know, a, and to make sure that that happens because it's not going to it's I see it difficult to try to figure out well, how do you do that with every single person that's trying to get data. That that's fascinating. I think it's really innovative. That's a really good thought process. I never thought about it that way. Yeah, I so. really appreciate the idea of transparency and that you're bringing that up. Um, so often and including that in like your thought process for this. One of the things that like really struck me when I was first learning about data ethics was this idea of like the unequal exchange of information. So back before, like back in the day, before internet, before computers, before we all had cell phones, your neighbor down the street, you knew as much about them as they know about you. In the case with these large companies that have your information, it's an unequal exchange. You're giving them your information and you aren't getting information back in return. So I like this idea of the transparency and this more equal exchange in terms of that. And especially if government can help provide that for the specific communities, I think that's a great place that we're moving toward. Yep, I agree. Absolutely. Um, yeah. uh, go ahead, go ahead, Doug. I was going to say, you know what else is funny is that a lot of this is not data that you gave them or that even exists. The algorithms are so strong now that their predictive capabilities they can tell you my political persuasion, although I may never have uh, shared that. They can tell you my sexual preference. They can tell you all kinds of things that they can derive based on really strong analytics. So, you know, it's, it's funny. We, we assume that there's some data set there that's completely accurate. They can do marketing on the basis of a prediction algorithm that may or may not be accurate, but they can still make a lot of money on it. And that's... That's going to get really weird because I can stop you from using my data, but I don't know that I can stop you from predicting how I'll do things just because I'm an ex-year-old black man who lives in Reynolds. Well, this is, I mean, this is, this is exactly it. And, and I think there's a, there's a concept here when it comes to, again, how we explore the, call it the propensity, I won't even say bias, the propensity for something bad to happen. And it's what we call in my business, it's called signal data, right? So to your point, Doug, there is data that is like explicit that, you know, I request something, I download something. Then there's all this telemetry, all these signals that are out there. And part of, you know, what you do to build good recommendation algorithms is you understand, okay, can I aggregate a variety of signals? to determine the next best action for an individual. So I may never have seen you before, but the way you show up to my site, the way you move your mouse, the things that you look at the longest is all sort of informing me. So that's a very, you know, kind of a, a, a cool way to build these predictive models. But it's also an opportunity for us to look at each individual signal that we're using to make these decisions to determine bias. I used a very basic example from my company. And again, we weren't worried about offending anybody. We were worried about not having the most effective algorithm for conversion. And that was whether or not we're going to take color into consideration. Because if you think about it in a shopping e-commerce context, when you're building a recommendation model, color can be incredibly important. It can become irrelevant very quickly. And how we weight that field will create bias within that model. So just looking at that one signal color, we can have a conversation around whether this can have a negative impact. We should be doing this around all of the signals. Now, when you get into things like deep learning and vectors and where we the, the computer now has gotten not only good at these performing these operations, but actually determining where new signals might occur and pulling those in, we also have an additional challenge. But again, you can go back to what is the, the unit that we are trying to make sense of and what's our intention and have it have just a healthy conversation about what could go good or bad as a result of that. And I think that could alleviate or at least prevent a lot of these mistakes from occurring. 
I mean, that's such an important point that I want to touch on. Uh, Lauren, you and I talked about this before in the prep that uh, Netflix got in trouble with just this, right? They went and they they were they were they were doing exactly what you said, Will, uh, signaling and looking at that, and then making recommendations for what people want to see. They still do this now. Well, you had one woman who was from a very conservative family, and she was Catholic and didn't want didn't want necessarily everybody to know that she was LGBT, right? And they, but they, they outed her. They said, oh, look, we know for the LGBT and they came up and they looked and then, you know, our family looks at this like, wow, like, how did you know that? And because of what you talked about, but I think there has to be the conversation. Not only can we do this, should we do this? And if we're going to do this, how do we do this in an intentional way to cause the least amount of harm? As we have more and more conversations about technology, that conversation always has to be there because if not, You'll have more consequences than that, but that's one obvious, obvious, obvious example of how things can go wrong and you cause harm. And that was likely unintentional, but again, they were just following following the signals. And there's no, but there's no, but, but there's no process in place to look at should we do this? What are the harmful effects, and how are we? How will we account for that? Uh, then you can run you can run across issues like that. And I think we will continue to run across challenges like that as we go along. As we can, as we really talk about the ethics with this, t- with, with 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 the technology too, that has to be part of the conversation. Um, so the big deal with this, uh, with Netflix, and it's kind of scary, is that it, and it ended up in a lawsuit. Was that um, they had this public contest and they set out this public anonymized data set, and so they removed what they thought was any personally identifying information. And from this, researchers were still able to identify specific individuals just from their history on Netflix and what we don't think is any identifying information, like our name, our zip code, where we live, things like that. Um, And that's what is so scary because your personal data, like even if you're not giving specifics about yourself, there's so much that can be found out and identified to you um, based on just like what you're talking about, Will, like how you go about certain things and how you interact with different tools. So for both of you, do you have any like processes or systems in place that you to help you ensure that these like pro- that your um, data and your technologies are unbiased? Well, I'm curious to hear Doug's answer from our perspective, because we serve clients. We're not doing our own data capture, our own data collection. So we're typically working with them as part of their strategy. Um, and so most you know, retailers, um, yeah, we do work with some governments, some healthcare, um, and we'll partner with part of their privacy strategies and their data strategies to determine you know, what is the appropriate level of, of information that we want to process. Really curious to hear how Doug thinks about this. But but before Doug goes to that, let's. Do you have a pro? But do you have when you think about how you approach it with them? Do you do you have a certain process to make them think about how to view this in a way so you don't get the, you know, you don't get the, you know, not to pick on Microsoft or whatever. You don't yeah. get the Microsoft example. Like, is there a process you may take your clients through to consider as they are collecting and going through the process? I mean, that y- sense? you got to remember we, we're playing a pretty small piece in the overall picture, right? So most right. of these brands and these retails we, we retailers we work with are typically at a minimum of about a billion dollars a year in revenue. So they're very large, they're omni-channel, um, and so we're coming in to help, you know, with a, with a piece of their call it data technical strategy for their primarily their digital properties, right? We are seeing some people bring these into the stores and and those kinds of things. And in those in those particular situations, you know, we don't impact a whole lot. We're not deciding, you know, visual treatments. We're not deciding who the stock photo should picture. We're not deciding how, you know, inclusion gets represented in those situations. What we're here to do is to help you effectively sell more. Right. So we're helping you convert more customers by getting them information that they want. We're empowering your merchandisers to make those human decisions to decide, hey, the recommendation engine says this. But you know what? If a person is looking at these hiking boots and they're looking at this pole, I guarantee you I can sell them this hat. You know, that's something that like a human being who has some domain understanding and who's a hiker can make those decisions. Right. So I just I bring that up not to say that to give ourselves any excuses. We're still responsible for the decisions that we make. It's just typically where we come in a lot of that has already been established. On the other hand, side of the house for us, like I said, we work internally with companies to help with their own information. There, I think there's a lot less risk because what we're looking at there is a lot more just domain-specific information. If you're an oil and gas company, we're classifying your maps and your research and we're doing some image processing and we're making that stuff retrievable. Um, typically does not fall into the, 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 the bucket of where you know some human biases can impact sort of the, the social experience that I have. If anything, it just 
makes me less effective at my job when you fail to surface information that I'm looking for. Yeah, and and so I, I started out today by talking about how typically in a small local government, we are not big contributors to new technologies. Like we don't build it. We tend to work with an innovator like Will's company. Um, but that being said, we are doing that when it comes to this blockchain experiment. And this is what we think is the wave of the future. So we uh, grew up in a way that we did not have specific methods to prevent that. And now that data is exploding and our information about citizens is exploding, we really need a new platform, a new way of thinking about it. And that is the hope for that technology. That being said, we also take a similar philosophy to kind of what Will is saying. Um, we did a machine learning exercise in some data that we were not really allowed to look at and examine. Uh, we have some tax data that the majority of maybe two or three people in the city are really allowed by law to even be reviewing. And, but we wanted to do some predictive analytics on it. What we managed to figure out what to do is to take our algorithm, our machine learning model, and put it on the inside of that firewall. So I don't need to see it. And I, I'm really excited about this potential um, that our, our privacy involves people looking at someone's information and using it for a nefarious purpose. But if we can take the technology and place it within the data set and generate the uh, insights and, and those kinds of things, they become useful while still being anonymous. And so I want to continue thinking and working about that as well. The, the third thing that I want to make sure I also capture here is we often get into talking about the dark side and the negativity about how these analyses and these insights, they just seem to emerge because this technology is so efficient at being able to now tell all sorts of things about people. There are positive things that we could do with this while we're trying to protect ourselves. And I'm gonna say something controversial about China now and their social score, which we all appropriately hate. And we think it's a terrible invasion of privacy that you know people could get a social score on some of this basis. But I've also seen other perspectives talking about how, you know, if you're the unbanked and you do not have a credit score, you're not in a position to take advantage of other signal world that other people have, like a bank account, like owning property, like a driving record, like those kinds of things. Um, and so without, I shouldn't have even talked about China, but without going down in that direction, how can some of these signals be used by people in a disadvantaged situation to acquire credit, to yep. get a bank account, to, to get a better score, to get uh, some credibility in getting a job and those kinds of things. If those signals could indicate a certain amount of reliability and trustworthiness, you know, we should continue thinking about how some of this data could be used for the least of these to build a profile about themselves that they don't have the $900 smartphone and yep. the, the location tracking that would otherwise build that profile for them. Yeah, yeah. I actually completely agree with that. Is you, you, you sparked some thoughts in my head. One, um, you really can't opt out of the system anyway. I tell people this, like, look, we got to, you can try, if you're opting out of technology, you're opting out of a whole bunch of opportunities. You're opting out of really society. powerful things. So like, yeah, so like you're, you're, you're yeah, you're society. Thank you. There's a better way to say you're opting out of society, essentially. So it's not, a, to think you can just be anonymous, it's, it's probably not going to work. The better, the better idea is like, like, you know, I, I know there's a lot of worry about facial recognition. Frankly, the more inputs they get of people of color, the more accurate it becomes. That's one example. So I know, I know that's kind of controversial, but it's not like they're going to stop using facial technology. It's not going to happen. So what we have to do is figure out how we inject ourselves in the process, not remove ourselves from the process, because that is not going to do anything except remove you from society. I think that's a good example. Uh, beyond that, though, there's also you know, there are, are, are there are great opportunities to figure out how to use data to empower people. And we've seen examples of how that can play out. So uh, I, I do think there are a way there are, there are ways to really look at this to say, well, how can we use data to make more accurate decisions in health? How can we use data in a way that makes better decisions with our criminal justice system? Uh, we know that these things can and do work, but I know there is a resistance and I understand the resistance uh, from people wanting to worry about their data. I tell people, you really don't have any privacy right now. So the issue is, <laughs> I mean, if I'm really honest with you, the issue yeah. is how do we want to better affect society moving forward? Yeah. And how can we help people? 
And how can we use this data to help more people? Because at the end of the day, when people are crying about their freedoms and things like that, as they do it on Facebook, I got news for you. We know yeah. already. So like, it's from like a, so from, now- a, from a cell phone talking about how vaccines are going to track you. Um, I will say, I mean, one of my one of my favorite projects is a um, is the Matahari project out of India. And this was um, a big data project that was all around identity. You know, India, obviously, had a massive population, people living in various uh, situations and, you know, a lot of folks who are who are needing help. Um, are hard to identify. So part of this project was, could we create a system to provide effectively like a, a digital identity for every single citizen? So we now understand the demographic of this, you know, multi-billion person country. And, you know, India has about $60 billion of social programs that go in every single year, but not a lot of visibility into where they need to be distributed the most. So the result of this project and having all these signals and having all this information was really to help them make much more informed decisions on where they could invest these social programs. So I love things like that. I love hearing Doug talk about, you know, signals. I think about this in, in hiring all the time, right? When we think about, you know, if I were to hire somebody off of a resume, off a of paper, off of where they went to school, one, you can make a lot of really bad hires that way, but two, you miss out on a lot of things. So when I'm looking at somebody's background, there's a lot of signals that I look for. Overcoming adversity. You know, if you were the first person in your in your your family to go to college, you came from a single family household, you had to work to put yourself through college, but you got that degree, then you got your first job, then you put your bat yourself back into night school to get your MBA. Like that is grit, determination. Forget about, you know, whether or not I'm, you know, feeling like your story is pulling at my heartstrings. I see an individual who who is performant, who is serially successful. And so again, this is where I just, when Doug was talking about credit, it made me think, okay, if that's how I think about hiring, what makes you decide whether somebody's fiscally responsible? It's not just whether or not they're in debt. As we know, debt can sneak up on you from a million different ways for a million different reasons, life and death sometimes, health, right? But there are plenty of other things that we can interpret. So I think it's, it's giving me a lot of encouragement in hearing this conversation and thinking about what's possible. Obviously, we talk about some of these pitfalls, but there's a lot of awareness of these pitfalls as well. I think Lauren alluded to that as well. So it's, it's an exciting time and participation is key. And Definitely. I would say uh, to your uh, the thought I missed that missed me that I wanted to talk about is one of our speakers, one of our partners, Solo Funds, is doing actually just that. Uh, it, was, it was founded by Rodney Williams and Travis Holloway. They got a lot of their funding actually here initially in Cincinnati, but Solo Funds give they're they're essentially disrupting the payday loan industry, and they give loans for I think under a thousand dollars, and they help reevaluate looking at different signals for what a credit worthy borrower is and they help and they let uh, lenders and borrowers set their own terms. And the, I mean, the only thing they, 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 they do is they make sure that you don't set a, I think above 10% or something like that. But beyond that, you can set your own terms. And they also, I think, insure a lot of the borrowers up to 90% of their loans. And they've, they've had really, really they have really low default rates and they've been able to help. And what they're trying to do is build another kind of digital footprint for what, what a credit score could be and then hopefully take that to uh, larger banks. But I think they're scheduled to do about 20 million in loans this year because they kind of picked up with COVID. So, uh, so, it's, it's, so that, is, that is already happening. Solo funds, you're, you've, you've heard from Travis Holloway earlier today. If you saw our, 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 our Family Feud event, you're going to get a chance to network with him later. So these things are being done. And I want to encourage people. This is why, you know, Travis started and, you know, had no, had, had, he didn't have a bunch of money. He just had a, back, he had a background in finance. They went out and they were able to do this. So, there are opportunities. And I know, Lauren, you're about to get to this as we get ready to wrap up uh, to talk about where you and I'll just ask this question. Where do you where would you advise people that are maybe just getting started in business or want to know more about AI and data? What are some resources, articles, books that might be just some good guidance and a place for them to start as they want to kind of learn and, and, and develop in this process? I mean, from my perspective, I'm trying to remember how I learned. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I would say I am an advocate for uh, going back to basics. And as I mentioned earlier, that algorithms predate computers, right? I mean, the actuarial tables of the insurance industry, you know, those are algorithms, right? Algorithms are on, on a whiteboard. You can write one out. You need to understand that power. And the computer and computer science and the scripting of it and the language becomes just a tool. And, and sometimes we raise up our computer tools, our computing tools, to a level that they don't belong there. 
we need to understand the concepts of the power That's of compound interest, for example, is an algorithm, right? And you need to understand that on pencil and paper. So I do recommend that people study economics and study, uh, you know, kind of social sciences and those kinds of things, and then uh, learn some aspect of technology. You don't need to be a master at it, but you should learn a language or two, uh, learn something about scripting and databases and, and, and play around with it. There are tools that you can download or even use in the cloud where you could just try a couple of scripts out and get a feel for it. And you may take that further or you may have learned enough at that point. So everybody does not need to be a computer scientist, but that's enough for you to start having a conversation and understand enough about, oh, I can see how if my assumptions were ABC, this algorithm is just gonna take off and it's gone forever. So that's the approach I would take. I want to just double down on this. Not everybody has to be a computer scientist. I mean, I get uncomfortable with this sort of pressure around STEM, especially in, into our communities. Um, you know, it's important, and I'm glad we're raising awareness, but we also need to understand that we need we need all kinds of backgrounds. We need all kinds of input. And to the points that we've been making around how artificial intelligence is in some ways lowering the bar of contribution because you don't have to be a PhD, I think it actually increases the demand for those art history majors, for those philosophy majors, for people who have different ways of thinking that can inject that thinking into how we're doing this. So while I completely, completely subscribe to the idea that everyone should conceptually understand how software works, how systems work. Now, the implementation detail to Doug's point, whether you know the language, whether you know the procedure, to me, that's a question of whether or not you find that interesting. <laughs> and if you do, then by all means, go all in and I will I will champion and support you. But it is by no means a requirement for success in this new world that we're in, in this society that we're in. And we need people from all walks of life with different ways of thinking contributing to this, especially now. This isn't 20 years ago when we were just trying to get the first things online, right? This is the time now where that human intuition that, that, that constructive thought is just critical. So I celebrate more diverse backgrounds coming into the industry and encourage people to find things you're passionate about. First and foremost, you know, STEM is just one way to contribute. I'll close on this, but I, I, there's a workshop I love to run with young kids where I bring them in and we go through, we, we bring a product to market. And we, we from conception to how we're going to package it, to how we're going to build it, to how we're going to put it into like a Best Buy store. It's usually like a video game console or a music player. And my whole purpose of that exercise is when we get done, we look at it and we say, you know what? We spent like five minutes talking about what we were going to build. That was such a little piece of this whole thing. We talked about promotion. We talked about selling. We picked somebody in the team who was going to go talk to Best Buy and make sure that we got that great um, uh setting that we wanted. And so it's just helping people understand that there is so much contribution and so many different backgrounds that come into this. And we should be celebrating that and encouraging that. <laughs> As we get ready to go, I'll just, I'll just conclude on something that, that, that Will, you told me, is like you talked about how you look at problems, like what, what problem are you trying to solve and what signals relate to that problem and how will people be motivated by that? And I look at it like, if you're trying to solve, if you know a problem you're trying to solve, think of it that way and think of it from that level, that instinctive level, and not necessarily the, the technical level. Because I think people get lost in the technical and lose sight of the big picture. So Absolutely. you got to do both. Absolutely. So I think that's good. I, I know we're wrapping up here. Let me just say uh, your questions and comments we're going to take. I think Lauren will be taking your questions and you get a chance to interact with both Doug and Will. But for everybody, we appreciate your time. And check out the podcast, Disruption Now, as we continue to, to disrupt common narratives and constructs. I want to thank this whole panel for coming. You guys were awesome. Thank you Really all. great content. Tons of fun. Thanks a lot. Thank you. See you later. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.